Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Life is filled with divisions, walls, barriers, boundaries. Uh, You know, biblically speaking, uh, the whole concept of division is uh, quite complicated in the biblical narrative and worldview. Division is very complicated because there are God-established boundaries, God-established barriers. We see barriers between the creature and the creator, boundaries between men and women, boundaries between righteousness and sin, boundaries between the church and the world, boundaries between heaven and hell. And Jesus had that jarring phrase, you know, I came not to bring peace but a sword. Uh, Sometimes division is part of life, even redeemed life. And some boundaries that God makes are actually quite temporary. Think, for example, about the boundary between Israel and the Gentile world. That's a boundary that comes crashing down. But other divisions, other boundaries, were not ordained by God at all. Not permanent boundaries, not temporary boundaries. These are boundaries that were created out of the bricks of sin. These are boundaries that we often make. You think, of course, of uh, the racial barriers that we've lived with for far too long in the world. You know, 108 million people died in the last century because of racially or tribally oriented animosities that grew up. In Rwanda, I was just there, you know, a seventh of the population died in 90 days because of tribal animosities. But also, many of you know what it's like to live with social boundaries because you're not really brought into some inner circles because you don't have the right credentials. You don't have the degree. Your stuff is unpublished. You know, you told somebody off in a meeting 10 years ago, but they never forgot about it, you know, so you're now excluded. Um, Other people experience linguistic uh, barriers. Linguistic barriers are, according to the Genesis account, part of fallenness, you know. I'll never forget the first time I met my my in-laws, especially my Italian grandmother-in-law. She didn't speak a word of English, and um, Monique introduced me to her, and we were going to take her to the farmer's market, but she was too weak to get out of the car and walk around, and so Monique said, look, I'll do the shopping for her. You just stay in the car and tend to grandma, (laughs) but she'll talk a lot, and you won't understand it, but just keep keep saying see, like yes, see, see, just keep saying that. That's what I did. She talked the whole time, 20 minutes of something, and I just kept saying, I mean, she could have said audaciously mean things, like you have a misshapen head, see, you know, you're, you're a very unattractive man, see, you're unfit for my granddaughter, see, I'm going to call my mafia Don to have him make you disappear, you know, see, um, not communicating, barriers, boundaries, um, some of them grave, some of them not so grave, but almost all of them that we construct are unpleasant. Well, you may know that Pentecost, Pentecost was originally a a Jewish festival. It has complex religious connotations, sometimes having to do with the harvest and other times having to do with the giving of the Jewish law to the people. 
And the Jewish law was a separatist act of God. He was taking Israel and setting them aside to be a particular nation that would dress, eat, and worship in particular ways that were distinctive from the other nations. And so in some ways, Pentecost was a separatist holiday. But now we experience a new kind of Pentecost that doesn't celebrate distinctives as much as it breaks them down. And so today I want to speak about three unifying gifts of the Holy Spirit, three unifying gifts of the Spirit, and then conclude by drawing out some Pentecostal ramifications for us here at Grace Anglican Church. But the first unifying gift of the Holy Spirit is that of his visitation. We have in this text a unifying visitation. I invite you to take up your bulletins and read along with me in verse 2. Verse 2 reads, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So we have a theophany, that is an appearing of God's immediacy to people. Very unusual in Holy Scripture, but this is one of those odd episodes. Now that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit only began to engage at this moment. No, the Holy Spirit has been present in the biblical text since the beginning. In Genesis 1, he's right there, hovering over the waters of the primordial creation, and then he, he's there to breathe into Adam so that Adam becomes a living soul. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is sort of like a grandmother who lives in Clearwater, Florida. You know, he visits you, but only very occasionally very occasionally. And mostly, um, she spends her time with fancy people. And well, that's often what the Holy Spirit does in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit gives uh, kings and priests and prophets an authority to have a ministry, to have a voice. And then when that person has run their course or done their duty, the Spirit retreats. But even in the Old Testament, this kind of spirit presence was understood to be uh, insufficient, at least insufficient in the future. And that's why this Old Testament prophet named Joel wrote about a time, a future time, in which the Holy Spirit would not be given out um, in, in such a hesitant manner and in such a focused manner, but that the Holy Spirit would be very liberally given out, poured out upon all flesh. We read about it in the beginning of our liturgy that sons and daughters would experience the Holy Spirit, men and women, old people and young people, that everybody would be brought into an encounter, an encountering space with the Holy Spirit. And then Joel's prophecy is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes down upon this Jerusalem high-rise, and everybody who was praying in this attic space experiences it. Not just experiences it on the inside, but there's all these physical manifestations of the nearness of God's Spirit in that moment. And so I just want to point out that this is quite a unifying visitation because it's the first time the Holy Spirit has ever been poured out so comprehensively, and if I may add this, indiscriminately, indiscriminately. Because the Holy Spirit comes to rest on everybody in that upper room, including, of course, the disciples. And I think it's really important for us to remember these men. Who were they at this point? I mean, not your ideal group. Like, if you were choosing uh, a team to begin a new business, or if you were selecting a vestry, or if you wanted to 
collect around yourself, a group of, uh, of people that have really dealt with a lot of their psychological burnout and trauma. You would not pick these human beings. I mean, this is quite a group because you have, uh, you have betrayers, you have skeptics, you have cowards, you have power-hungry men, you have people that are terribly ill-prepared. You had, most of them ran away from Jesus in his hour of need or they fell asleep. Um, many of them didn't believe, you know, the stories of the resurrection idea initially. These are, this is a dubious crew. Uh, and yet, the Holy Spirit lands upon them. Now, there are some traditions that teach, you know, the Holy Spirit will only come to you if you're a clean vessel. Not really, no, because there, outside of Christ's redeeming work, there are no clean vessels. That's just the case. And so the Holy Spirit lands on these disciples, these people in the upper room with all of their problems and all of their inconsistencies. And I think the, the God's um, very lavish granting of the Spirit needs to be paid attention to because very often we think that the Holy Spirit and, and the Holy Spirit's fullness isn't for me. You know, I don't believe enough. I haven't repented enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm, I'm not consistent enough. I haven't worked on my problems enough. I have to be special. Well, not in this new administration. The, the Holy Spirit um, is so indiscriminately poured out upon people, and that means that Pentecost uh, and the reverberations of that Pentecost day, they're for you. And when I say for you, I don't mean the potential you that might exist 20 years from now when you're nicer and better. I mean the Holy Spirit, the nearness of God, the person who, is the, um, who, who has this creative potential of God is near you right now and seeks to be connected to you right now with all of your flaws. And so we have this unifying visitation in which the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all flesh, begins in the upper room of that high rise and then spills out to the crowd who believe and are baptized. So we have a unifying visitation and we also have a unifying comprehension, a unifying comprehension, because it says in verse 8, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now, Acts chapter 2 mentions 18 groups, 18 groups from 18 different locations all over the Roman Empire, uh, and arguably some outside of it. Um, now, some people think that the Jewish religion was, you know, all located within, you know, a 10-mile radius, you know, right around Jerusalem, that that was it, and everybody knew each other's name. Like, hey, there's Bob, you know, I see him every Passover. Not, not really, no. In fact, Judaism by this point was a diaspora faith with believers all over the Roman Empire. That sometimes happens during periods of persecution. People flee their homes and make a home in a place that was not originally their home. And that's what happened through the centuries. And so there are Jews all over the Roman Empire. And uh, these diaspora Jews have one thing in common according to this text. They're devout men. Now, how do we know they're devout men? Because they came to Jerusalem for a festival that was not required. There was no requirement that they show up in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And yet, here they are because they're so grafted in to the great tradition and the cause that they believe that their presence would spiritually help them. And so they believed it was part of their religious duty, so they go. 
Well, and that's quite something, by the way, to risk a journey in those days. That, you know, they didn't have Southwest. Well, sometimes I wish we didn't have Southwest, but that's another issue for another day. Um, <laughs> just if the planes would come on time, that's all I'm asking. But, um, but they risked a journey, sometimes lethal journeys to, to arrive in the city. And what's interesting is these devotees receive a personalized linguistic miracle. I guess what makes this even more surprising uh, as a reader of the text is because these were devout folks from all over the empire. Many of them would have known Hebrew. If the Holy Spirit wanted to reveal something, why didn't he just do it in the Old Testament biblical language? But instead, the Holy Spirit chooses deliberately to offer a message to all of these people in their own common native languages, the same message in various languages. You see, there's there's a miracle in both the speaking, of course, because the disciples, you know, weren't trained in these languages, so they're given the miracle to speak, and then everybody hears. It's a, there's, a, there's an auditory miracle as well. They're hearing their, the gospel in their own languages, their common languages, their market languages, the languages they use to sing to their children. Um, now, this is a big deal, but I think sometimes we lose the big deal because of our familiarity with this passage, but please remember that it is very, very common in religion to see not only language but a particular language as more spiritual or the right interpretive language for all religious truth. You see this among our Islamic friends, right, because the Quran is understood to be only rightly offered to humanity uh, in the language of Arabic. In the medieval church, Latin was associated with sacredness, and so the mass was said in Latin, and that was understood to be the only way to clearly and consistently communicate the truth of God. Well, you, you may know that the Anglican Reformation, they wrote this text called the 39 Articles of Religion, and in Article 24, uh, within that faith statement said this, It is a thing plainly repugnant to the word of God to have public prayer in the church or to administer the sacraments in a language not understandeth of the people. Why did they have to write that? Because they understood, our framers understood the Pentecost principle, that God is giving us at Pentecost comprehension, localized comprehension that the the Christian faith is not a a sacred mystery cult or just pageantry. Instead, it's supposed to clearly communicate biblical ideas and truths to you and to me. And so one of the key moments of the Reformation was to say Latin used to be an important language because it was nearly a universal trade language that everybody understood. But by the, the 16th century, that was no longer the case. Now people don't know that language, and they need to hear the gospel in their own words. Um, and that really is the Pentecost principle of comprehension. The Holy Spirit creates comprehension. The Babel project failed because of language, but now because of Pentecost, language becomes a bridge rather than a barrier. Uh, you know, the written New Testament is a witness to the linguistic miracle of Pentecost, the New Testament itself, because the New Testament, as you may know, doesn't record the direct words of Jesus of Nazareth. Because the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, but Jesus spoke Aramaic. He spoke Aramaic. So the, um, the New Testament is in some ways a Pentecostal document, meaning the universally relevant Christ 
can be expressed through any language, any language. He makes all languages vehicles of sacred comprehension. And so, just as I'm speaking to you in English, based off an English text that was based off a Greek text, that was based off of a Jesus who spoke Aramaic, all of that is not only, a, uh, not only fine, but needful, according to the Acts 2 model that communication and comprehension is part of what the Holy Spirit does. And so the Holy Spirit's job today and always is to get the gospel to speak to you, where you sit, where you are right now, for you to comprehend the love of God for you that was offered in Christ Jesus. And so we have a unifying visitation, a unifying comprehension, and lastly, critically, a unifying message. Uh, So the Holy Spirit is attached to words. You know, many people, if you ask them, what is the sign of the Holy Spirit being present with you, they'll use the language of emotion. And I don't dislocate the concept of emotion from the Christian faith. You know, how we feel in terms of being lifted or having access to our, to our pain or being able to confess things because of the conviction of the Spirit within. All of that may be very good and true, but I think it's ultimately important to remember that the Holy Spirit is principally attached to a message, and we get this in verse 11, because the crowd say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What are the mighty works of God? Well, the rest of chapter 2 tells us, really the rest of the book of Acts tells us, that every time the apostles preach, these spirit-driven apostles preach, they herald publicly the brutalized and reclamated Christ, the Christ who died and the Christ who rose again, and that that death and that resurrection has a multiplicity of implications for every single one of us now and every single one of those audiences then. Uh, And so the Holy Spirit has a script. The Holy Spirit has a script, and any time you hear the script of Christ, you are hearing the Holy Spirit. Now, um, I, I, I just want to communicate the importance of this because there is no message that could unite people in such a healthy way. And the message of Jesus creates beautiful unity because it's never about cosmetics. It's never about the externals of life. It's never, you know, it's never Jesus unifying us on the concept of how we spend money or how well-educated we are, or what our skin tones look like, or what language we speak, or the economics we experience within our home or our nation, or how well-respected we are. It's far deeper than that. And here's the bedrock message of Christ that unites us all, that Christ comes for sinners, for devastated people, for ruined people, for people that have destroyed themselves, that Christ comes for you, not after you improve, but you in your actual life, in your actual situation, that his love for sinners um, transcends all categories, all niche markets, all little fiefdoms that we would wish to put ourselves in, that Jesus is the great leveler. He levels us in terms of anthropology and Christology, that is, what our human nature needs and what he provides for needy human nature. Um, James Smith uh, wrote about the early Pentecostal movement of the 20th century, and this is what he writes. It's beautifully compelling. The Pentecostal movement was astonishingly diverse, 
Blacks, whites, and Latinos worshiped together. Males and females, rich and poor, all were conduits for the same spirit. They were fond of saying, and this is such a great phrase, they were fond of saying that the color line was washed away in the blood of Jesus. Yeah. Well, it's a unifying message. The Spirit gives us words, words about a Christ, words about an effective Christ, words about a bleeding Christ, words about a risen Christ, words about a Christ who came to save you and save me. Well, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He takes the butchered body of the human race and sutures it back together. He takes the, the, the broken image and reforges it. And this begins at Pentecost, where he starts making a new humanity out of you and me and all of us. So a unifying visitation that connects everybody under the same outpouring of the Spirit, a unifying comprehension that opens all ears to the message, and a unifying message, of course, that connects all people to the Christ, the man for others. So let me now give you what I think are some Pentecostal ramifications for us at Grace you know, we as a parish are facing into a weird challenge. It's a weird challenge. And here it is. Grace Church has grown by 40% within 12 months. That's unusual. 